open our eyes, our hearts, and our minds, our ears to the voice of your spirit as we study from scripture today. Please anoint the speaker for your name's sake, we pray. Amen. Thank you, praise team. Absolutely beautiful. Thank you so much. Today we are around a milestone in the Bible in 90 days journey. Most of the people who are reading the Bible in 90 days have passed the 60 day mark. Well done. I know this has been quite the journey and has been an experience that, uh, that has probably changed your life. That's why we started it because reading the entire Bible will do that in a way that some bits and pieces of it might not do it for you. And so I want to commend those who are well on the journey. Uh, no judgment on people who aren't doing it. That's not an issue. It's just that those who have begun the journey together have found some things that they may not have known and their insight is remarkable because of it. Now, I want you to take a moment with me to just think about how grateful we are for the small groups. Many of the small groups have been uh, faithful in this task and I've been so blessed by the small group leaders who have taken you in this journey because they are an extension of myself. You know, I, I, I've made no secret of the fact that I'd love to be in on every one of your classes and your small group gatherings, but I'd also ruin them, you know, because when the preacher's in the room, they're just a different flavor, you know, and not only that, but I like talking about this stuff, so you might never get anything done if I came to your class. So I'm very grateful to those small group leaders who are in by extension encouraging you and urging you along in this journey that I believe has the power to change your life and so I give thanks to God for what I think is revival that's happening in our church because of this experience it is exciting to see how this embracing of the word of God in scripture is changing people's lives it's providing insights that you didn't know you have the whole reason for doing this has always been, and I think will continue to be, for me, a, it, it is about getting to know the real heart and mind of God, to get to know your Creator. And much of what we think we know about God is incomplete. But as you read through the entire Bible, you begin to understand that this love letter written by God in the form of, of uh, 66 books or so, uh, it, it's basically a expression of God's love and God's desire for the people that God created uniquely to be the permanent companion for his son has in fact uh, been fulfilled despite all sorts of limitations. And so that's where we find ourselves in the 60 day mark. At 60 days, we are within view of the New Testament. We know that we will reach it soon. In fact, you can think of it as though you are exiles crossing the wilderness toward the promised land and now you're beginning to see the Judean hills in the distance. You are maybe able to envision it in some other way if you've been on vacation or you're going on vacation and you know you're nearing your destination because a landmark is starting to come into view. And this is where we are in the Bible in 90 days journey. We can see the New Testament just before us. 
But before we get there, there are a few things that have to be settled. And that's what we're going to talk about today. As with each of week's messages, I try to cover a little bit of what we read last week and a little bit of what we're reading in the coming week and to help you tie it together. Meanwhile, in your small groups, you're discussing it, you're watching videos, and then you have additional information you can get through the Knowing God with Heart and Mind Facebook group, which you are welcome to join. Now, as I mentioned to you last week, the Babylonian exile is the watershed moment in the journey of the people of the old covenant. God made a covenant with uh, Moses, with Abraham and Moses, and through that covenant has extended it through to critical leaders along the way. And God has upheld consistently God's part of the bargain without fail. On the other hand, the uh, people have not done quite so well. <laughs> they, uh, they, on the other hand, have violated the covenant over and over again. And God has expressed through the prophets where we are now, God's opinion of their behavior. And God uses some pretty colorful language as you probably have noticed to say how he feels about the people of the old covenant and their uh, illicit behavior. That is never more clear than when you get to the prophet and to the small book of Hosea, where God basically says, Hosea, sorry about your luck, but I've picked you to demonstrate exactly how this relationship between me and the people of the covenant appears to be going. And so Hosea marries a prostitute. And she just keeps right on doing what she's done all along. And Hosea keeps coming back to her because of the love and because of the covenant relationship. And so God is saying, in effect, through Hosea, that's exactly what this has been like, guys. This is what it's like. The Babylonian exile is a watershed moment because it's the time when a couple of really significant things change because the superpower that they became under the covenant relationship, even though it was built on a somewhat uh, self-interested interpretation of the covenant, nevertheless, this great power that they had become for a little while is completely collapsed now. Its, it's cities are abandoned. Its uh, authority in among the nations has been lost. It is it is a devastation that's difficult to really wrap your mind around, but you just have to try to see it as though, say, the capital city of the state we live in was suddenly abandoned and there was no life there at all. And that the whole structure of the, the government and everything was just gone. And there was just chaos and anarchy. And all the people who might be able to restore such things and create uh, new versions of such things, they've been taken away to do it for somebody else in another place. And so all that's left is a remnant. This is what has happened during the Babylonian exile. This is why Jeremiah, often called the crying or weeping prophet, is, is lamenting the way he is because he's seeing how their disobedience has led to their destruction. He's seeing how hopeless the situation is and he's expressing on behalf of God how desperate they are because of their lack of obedience to God. 
But let's talk about what that looked like for a second because it's more relational than legal. That's the problem you see. The whole point of the covenant is a relationship. Could, could we dial me down just a little bit? I keep hearing a ring. And so it's more relational uh, in that God is not creating the covenant in, in a way, as a way of making you know, a recipe for uh, righteousness. You know, God's not creating the covenant law as a way of making a, a uh, formula that you could follow in order to receive God's blessing. But the people have become so addicted to the idea of following the formula in order to get the blessing that they've left out the relationship. And my guess is, is that's still a common problem, even today that people still have a tendency to want to follow a formula in order to get God's blessing, but they don't necessarily want the hassle of a relationship, right? You know, um, at the risk of being uh, ridiculous, you know, it's kind of like wanting to borrow somebody's children for a couple of hours and then give them back before the hard stuff happens, right? You know, the, the reality is, is that they don't want a relationship, they just want the benefits. And once again, this is why God is so consistently using terms like prostitution to describe what they're doing. But it gets worse than that. The people of the old covenant have reached a point where they've created a form of the religion, they've created a form of the relationship with God that looks right on the surface, but it's all wrong underneath. They are going through the motions. They, they could sit in a worship service like this and sing God's praise with, with great uh, effectiveness and, and, and it could feel very glorious. And yet within two hours, they could just as easily commit themselves to some false God and think nothing of it. See, that was their problem. They, they were not transformed by their relationship with God. They were not in an intimate relationship with God. Rather, they were giving lip service to God and expecting God to give rewards in exchange, which is exactly what the false gods do. So this was the heart of the problem. And it was never more clearly expressed than in the thing that the minor prophets, these are the guys who were not, you know, the difference between the major prophets and the minor prophets, just so you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit like uh, the majors and the minors in baseball, right? You have major league prophets were people who worked as prophets for a living. They had longer books because this is what they did for a living. They were working in the, in the temple courts or the, pa or the palace courts or whatever. They worked for uh, the prophet to be prophets. They worked. They led schools of prophecy. They were religious professionals. The minor prophets were people who were like lay pastors who were called out by God. Amos, for example, is thought to have been a man who ran a vast uh, orchard and was very successful at it. But then God, God calls him out of his orchards to go and preach to the people of Israel, even though he's a citizen of Judah. And what does he preach? The minor prophets are always saying, God is really sick and tired of your oppression. God says, you worship in my name. You give me all the credit for what you do. And frankly, I'd rather not have it because I see you doing oppression. 
And then maybe you begin to realize as you read through the entire Old Testament that God is very consistent. And this is the whole point, you see, of reading the entire Bible is that you get to know the personality of God. You get to know the heart of God. And you begin to realize that we, we have answers to questions that haven't been asked in Scripture, but we still got the answer. For example, if somebody says to you, I don't understand what God's going to do about people who never heard the gospel, I guess they all go to hell. You haven't read your Bible. If you read your entire Bible, you get to know the personality of God and you realize that God is so extravagantly, extravagantly just, so extravagantly compassionate that God surely has a plan for that. Now, you could say that's my opinion, but it's my opinion based on reading Scripture a lot and seeing the heart and mind of God expressed through Scripture. And this is what I mean when I say we read it so that we can know the heart and mind of God, because there are answers to questions that aren't asked in Scripture, but they are understood through Scripture because we get to know, really know God through this intimate relationship that is so well enhanced by reading the entire Bible. And what we find, for example, is that the reason that the small uh, part-time prophets are, are uh, preaching against their oppression of the poor and the widow and the orphan is because God hates oppression. Because the Bible makes it very clear to us that God despises oppression. And why wouldn't God despise oppression? Because oppression is an ultimate expression of selfishness and vanity and pride. Why do we oppress others? Because we think we're better than they are. Because we think we're smarter than them. Because we think we know better than them. We look down on them and we say in a condescending way, let me take care of that for you. And it's a form of oppression. And God hates oppression because oppression comes as a result of pride. And pride is the essence of sin. Pride is what caused Satan to become the fallen angel that leads all the fallen angels because Satan's pride made him think he could be better than God at being God. Imagine the creature going to the altogether separate being, altogether apart from the created order and saying, I think I can do that part better than you. You know, and this is Satan's pride. It's, it's so blind, it's so arrogant that it doesn't know how ridiculous it looks. And so pride is the thing that caused Adam and Eve to say, I don't think God's telling us the whole story. I think God left something out on purpose. I think God is, is mistreating us. And so they disobey God as an act of, of selfishness and pride. Pride leads to the, the death of uh, Abel, the brother of Cain, for example, because Cain is proud and, 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 and arrogant and he's frustrated that his brother has outshined him in the eyes of God. And so we lay this groundwork in order to say, see how God makes it clear throughout Scripture. Even though we haven't finished the book yet, we've already seen very clearly how much God despises oppression. And it's because of what's at the heart of oppression. And at the risk of taking an unnecessary side trip, I want you to know that that's also at the heart of the various things that divide people of the church. I'm sure you can look at the history of this church or any congregation where people have gathered together in a place like this, and you will find that most of the really bad times that have occurred 
where there was infighting and there was discord and chaos, it always stemmed from pride. It always stemmed from oppression. You say, well, what kind of oppression are you talking about here? Because oppression sounds like a pretty harsh word that seems to talk more about violence. But you know, there's a violence in our attitudes sometimes. There's a violence in the way we talk sometimes. And who hasn't, if you've been a part of a church for more than a few years, hasn't sat in on a meeting where everybody was trying not to push a certain person's buttons because they know once you push that person's buttons, we're all going to pay for it. We're all going to suffer because we dared to cross this person who always gets their way. Is that person not an oppressor in the church? Isn't it pride then that leads to that? You see, whenever we let our violent behavior come out, we're basically expressing a form of oppression because we're assuming that we are in some way justified in the way that we affect others negatively. How do you know where Satan's at work? That's another one of those truths that's become very clear to you. If you've read the Bible now for 60 days, you've probably noticed that Satan is always where you see chaos. And God is always where you see discipline and grace. Now, I've been saying cosmic order, but in the scheme of things, it could be easily, more easily identified if you look at it as dis discipline, which is the word discipleship is derived from that. So where you see discipline and grace, you see God at work. And all of this is clear to us in Scripture, so no wonder God has reached this point where God has basically said, we're done with the old covenant. Now, there's a discussion we could have in a class sometime for a good two hours, I think, and we could do this, and I'd be happy to do this, as you can imagine, but, but basically, you may be wondering, well, why then does God have a covenant that probably can't work and then replace it with the covenant that will surely work? Well, there's a, there's a discussion that we can have about that. But for now, let me just say this. If you will just look at how the progression of the Old Testament has gone up to this point, you probably will recognize that God has given them a way to live righteously according to God's precepts. They, according to discipline, have attempted to live by these things, but they've fallen under the influence of someone, and that someone is the enemy. And what we have to recognize, the scripture makes very clear to us, is that this is not only about God's relationship with us. I know this is hard to believe, but believe it or not, the Bible isn't about us. It is, and it isn't. The Bible is about God's relationship with us, but it's also about God's relationship with the Son, His Son. It is also about God's relationship with the Holy Spirit, His Holy Spirit. It's also about God's relationship with God's principal enemy, Satan. And the Bible's about all of that. And so in a respectful way, I would suggest that we are both the prize and the pawns in this battle. And it's difficult to explain that concept and it's often misunderstood, but reading scripture through from beginning to end, you begin to understand that the purpose of the, the creation of humanity was this perfect companionship for the son and this will be fulfilled ultimately as the son who is the bridegroom retrieves the bride, but we haven't gotten to that part yet. Spoiler. However, in the meantime, 
We also have to reconcile with the fact that God is dealing with God's principal enemy and the enemy is determined to destroy God's plan. And so we've got to recognize that. What God does as God gives way and leaves the old covenant behind is that God has already crafted a new covenant plan. And the, uh, the uh, prophets that we're reading and we'll read about in the coming week, they're going to tell us, they're going to give us pictures of the coming new covenant. They've already hinted at it some. When you read Ezekiel, for example, one of the things you should probably notice, as I have, is Ezekiel seems like a, uh, a lawyer who is, be, is speaking on behalf of God to all of those who violated the old covenant. He's sort of giving a summation or a closing argument against the violators of the old covenant. And so all of Ezekiel's words seem to be uh, a, a sort of summation in that they describe the old covenant. They flesh out the heart of the old covenant. They, this, is, this is Ezekiel saying, at the heart of this covenant was not a bunch of behaviors and, and, and tasks. And, and at the heart of this covenant was not this, this uh, uh, sort of system that God wanted you to follow, but it was a relationship with God. That was what was at the heart of the matter. And what you failed to recognize is that this is a living God who wants to be in an intimate relationship with you in the same way that God was in the garden with the original created people. Instead, they treated God as an obstacle and they treated God's rules as ways to avoid contact with the obstacle. And therefore, they missed the point. Now, God says, I have a way that's going to settle this once and for all, but it means giving up the old covenant. Daniel will tell you in a particularly beautiful and, and, and fascinating set of passages exactly how temple worship will come to an end. And as surely as Daniel spoke it, it came to pass. Even Jesus saying, as Daniel told you, so it will be. And so the old covenant is a thing of the past. The new covenant is a covenant that I would like for you to hear about from Jeremiah of all people. So we're going to turn to Jeremiah 31 and we're going to read verses 31 to 34. Listen to this. This is Jeremiah who, is, who has been punished for telling the leaders of Israel things they didn't want to hear. <laughs> you know, don't you love it when you get to be the bearer of bad news and you get punished for it? This is the man who was dropped in a cistern, you know, an empty hole in the ground and left there in the mud because he told them things they didn't want to hear. And listen to the word of God that came through him. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, that after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer 
shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Even in the midst of the total failure of the old covenant, God is predicting, not really predicting, stating as a matter of fact, the terms of the new covenant. And the new covenant will fulfill everything that was in the old covenant. It will fulfill the promises made to those who were men and women after God's own heart in the Old Testament. Even to David, who was told that his successor would sit on the throne. And Jeremiah knows this even while he is watching the destruction of anything David built. And so we have an image, even a foreshadowing of the Christ in this prediction, a foreshadowing of the Holy Spirit, because how is it that you won't have to tell your neighbor about Jesus or about God's love and they will know because of the presence of the Holy Spirit, because the new birth that you receive in redemption through Christ empowers you, even enlivens you with the Holy Spirit so that where you are, the Holy Spirit of God is. And does your neighbor necessarily need to hear anything from you to know? Well, that's an interesting question. But at the end of the day, a spirit-filled Christian believer is a witness to Christ in every day of their life. This is why our behavior matters. This is why our words and our deeds matter. Not because they have anything to do with our redemption, but because they are our expression of the Spirit of God in us. And so we will fall short and we'll be weak at times and we'll be in some ways, not unlike the people of the old covenant, but the difference is, is that we have already been redeemed and we have been given the power over sin and death through the Holy Spirit. And what we most often fail to do in our new covenant relationship with God is to engage that power called the Holy Spirit. We don't go to warp drive. We don't hit the nitrous button. We don't turn up the turbo. We just cruise along without the benefit of the Holy Spirit's power over sin and death. But if we wanted to live transformed lives, we have the power within us that those Old Testament people did not have. And there's where, regardless of God's rationale, we are the beneficiaries of the most incredible grace and blessing ever known. We are people of the new covenant. As you finish reading the Old Testament in the coming days, you will read lots of stories that will be remarkable. And we'll talk more about one before we're done with the Old Testament. But these stories, rest assured, are all foreshadowings of the second covenant, the final covenant. They all tell you that the Old Covenant is done and that the New Covenant in Christ is on its way. And even 400 years before Jesus' birth, there were signs all along that God had a new plan and it was in the form of his own presence on the earth. Are you getting excited about getting to the New Testament? I hope so. And don't you know that the New Testament is going to be richer and more meaningful to you now than ever before? 
because you read so carefully through the Old Testament. Now you will be as equipped to encounter Christ as the Apostle Paul, as those Jewish believers that Christ encountered so many times along the way who were looking for the fulfillment of the Old Testament. You'll also understand the mind of those who have embraced a post-exile version of Judaism that is still going on to this day. That is, for all intents and purposes, a cultural, secular religion. And when you get to the New Testament, you'll see how Jesus encounters both kinds of Jews. And then, thank God Almighty, how he deals with us Gentiles and creates something new. Isn't that exciting? I hope you're looking forward to it. If you haven't started reading the Bible in 90 days, you can go ahead. We'll wait. We can celebrate until everybody crosses the finish line. It'll be okay. Now let us pray. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Now burn it upon our hearts. Transform us, we say, earnestly with your Holy Spirit so that everything that comes as a result of hearing your word will glorify you in us. Amen. Thank you.